Coming up in this podcast, Belmont Park Apartments, Lithium Projects, Fringe Festival, Chris Sutherland, and our special report on universities. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Panel and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Mark, plenty to talk about this week. Uh, let's start with a long-awaited project by property developer Golden Group, which wants to build uh, several apartments, I think, and some offices around Belmont Park Racecourse. Several would be an understatement. (laughs) This is a very large development that's uh, been um, in the works for quite a few years. Golden Group is a family-owned business out of Singapore. Uh, They've got several projects um, on the go in Western Australia already, but this is by far their biggest. Uh, They're talking about four and a half thousand apartments Mm. that would encircle the Belmont Park racetrack. Uh, that would cost about $3.8 billion, Gee. developed over a long period of time. But just to think, it was back in 2007 when Perth Racing first talked about this idea about building high-rise apartments on the surplus land mm-hmm. on the outside of the racetrack. Yep. And then it was five years ago when Golden Group made a $50 million down payment effectively So they've been doing a lot of work there with the architecture firm Hassel, um, been monitoring the market, but they've started a site preparation out there. They had an event with the Premier, and they're saying it's all go. Um, Stage one will be effectively on the other side of the railway line from the new Optus Stadium. Right, so kind of where the existing big stand is or just next to that. And close to the train station. Gotcha, makes sense. So they're talking about 1,500 apartments. now. On its own, yeah, that's a very significant addition. Yep. Um, so yeah, it adds to a, a cluster of development around that area. Um, it's very close to that Rivervale precinct near Great Eastern Highway, um, other side of the river, mm-hmm. um, where there's been you know, a lot of apartment developments have gone in there in the last sort of four, five, six years. It also adds to this um, movement, um, I guess, certainly around the country where sporting facilities um, use surplus land. So Claremont Oval Oval, is the the best example. Locally, yeah, definitely. That's now being sort of ringed by apartment buildings. Still got a footy oval in the middle, still got the grandstand, but all that surplus land has been developed. Mm. So, yeah, look, very significant development. Um, I guess it adds to this, you know, I'd I'd call it a a fairly slow-moving trend towards more apartment living in Perth. Um, It's certainly happening um, you know, bit by bit, we're catching up with the rest of the world. Yeah. As we've also discussed, a lot of people in Perth still like their suburban block of land. Well, you've got to so, give people options, don't you? Exactly. And you're building it, you know, essentially. And I see there was a little bit of an office component right there on that on that eastern side of the river uh, where the Windan Bridge goes across. So, you know, opposite from the, uh, uh, the, the river's edge, but opposite from the new stadium. So, uh, you know, like a little bit of spread. I mean, it's not quite a North Sydney-esque kind of move, is it? It's, it's more just a little enclave. Hey, well, and if it all comes to fruition, um, yeah. as they assure us it will over time, um, it'll be a, a pretty large enclave. Yeah, no, no, yeah. it looks amazing. Uh, and just, Mark, you know, <laughs> a question without notice. Golden Group done large apartment developments to date? 
They've done some CBD developments. Yeah. They've also got a, a broadacre residential development at Whitby, which is south of Armadale. Yep. Um, and certainly in other jurisdictions, they've done apartment developments. Gotcha. So they've done apartment developments in the city or they've done uh, office? Offices in the city. Yeah, that's what I yeah. thought. Okay. Yeah. No, I did wonder. All right. Um, now, lithium, big topic in this uh, <laughs> in this little broadcasting studio we have. Uh, lithium remains in the news. What's What's the latest there? Well, this is a follow-on from what we discussed a week ago when we talked about the uh, mining projects feature that we'd put together for our, for our next edition. That talked about a, a very big pipeline of mining projects, primarily in iron ore, that's sort of the big ticket numbers, um, but also in other sectors, and lithium is one of them. Now, there's been two significant developments in the past week. Um, Chris Ellison's company, Mineral Resources, they're already mining lithium up in the Pilbara. They're talking about building a refinery up there uh, to produce uh, lithium uh, carbonate or lithium hydroxide. Right. They announced during the week they're going to sell half of that business. And effectively, they're looking for someone, for an investor to come in and effectively pay half the bills mm-hmm. for what would be a very substantial development. They haven't given us dollar figures yet, but... I'll come to that. Yeah. And then the other news, Friday morning, uh, the Premier was down at Kwanana and a, uh, in a, a large, empty uh, piece of land with people from uh, Kidman Resources and a Chilean company called SQM. They announced a joint venture last year and they've now come out and said Kwanana is their preferred site for their lithium refinery. Hmm. Just around the corner from... Tianchi Lithium, which is already building a uh, refinery. So Mm. this is becoming a very significant part of industry in Western Australia. Yeah, fascinating. So on my research, we're looking like we're going to have four lithium refineries Mm. built here in the next few years. To give people a guide, uh, Tianchi is spending $700 million building their one at Kwanana, uh, about 500 construction jobs, 170 operational jobs. So the other three um, would be similar numbers. Um, Certainly this one that that, uh, Kidman and uh, the Chileans are doing, similar in scale. Um, There's an American company called Albemarle. They've already got a big mining operation here. They're looking at Kemerton down near Bunbury. Um, So another, you know, five, six, seven hundred million dollars, several hundred jobs. So you know, very exciting times, all driven by the boom in uh, electric vehicles and other things that need uh, long-life batteries, yeah. which all contain lithium and nickel and other things that we produce here. And, you know, a fascinating element to this, Mark, and I, I, I doubt this has yet come out, but I suspect, and I only suspected it as a discussion point, is, you know, we're talking about mobile energy here. You know, you've got to... You've got to um, uh, rev up your battery and that's what the lithium's for but you actually need almost static energy to create the batteries right and the story in wa since uh, we had that real problem in 2004 where we had some some uh, energy issues and later when a bit later when we had veranus island issues we've really uh, got our gas situation under control here there's uh, plenty of domestic gas it's affordable and, uh, and, co- and at competitive prices, and a huge contrast to the East Coast. So 
it's kind of you know that's a that's an underplayed story at the moment that we have a really interesting and and stable energy market for business development and all I can say to you know the Magowan government is to give a good thought about their restriction on fracking because the fracking that can be done in WA to provide plenty of domestic gas to supply this kind of thing is you know safe it's it's shale it's very very um, reasonable and uh, and 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 the, the regulations are there to do it so I'm just you know throw my little fracking angle in there as to we need to you know take a little bit of political risk to get the the payola that I see is a really strong point anyway there you go there's a kind of a abstract comment okay. <laughs> I don't know have any of them mentioned the the energy price or the energy component in their processing Oh, look, I agree 100%. Um, that, that it's a, um, an accepted part of, of looking at business opportunities in Western Australia at the moment, mm. that there's um, an assured supply of gas um, or potentially other fuel sources, but certainly gas, yep. um, at reasonable prices. Yeah. No, no, I think it's, uh, you know, that, that that's uh, becoming a, a real strong point. Interesting. All right. Uh, now, yeah... Uh, to the Fringe Festival, we're going from a you know heavy industry to uh, <laughs> to the arts. The Fringe Festival has been one of our most high-profile arts success stories, but I gather it's not all good news. A bit of stuff going on there. Yeah, look, um, as you say, an outstanding success story. But in the past week, we've discovered a lot more to how this festival comes together than most of us had previously appreciated. Uh, turns out that about half the events that operate under the Fringe Festival banner are actually organised by independent events companies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's about a dozen of them. Um, one, of them. One of them is called Jump Climb. They operated the Noodle Palace venue, which used to be above Central TAFE, yep. upstairs, and then shifted last year to Elizabeth Quay. Uh-huh. And people that have watched it closely would know that there was actually halfway through the festival, there was actually a falling out between management of the Fringe Festival and management of that venue. Mm. We didn't appreciate how significant this might be because Jump Climb now appears to have um, gone bust. Mm. Um, The festival itself is planning to apply to the courts to put it into liquidation because there's a whole bunch of performers who are now out of pocket to the uh, tune of about $200,000. Gotcha, okay. So, you know, for, for people like me that are watching from the outside, you'd assume that performers had a relationship with Fringe Festival. Mm. They've come out and said, well, actually, no. We, we organise the overarching um, festival. Yep. Um, but, you know, they've contracted with Jump Climb. Jump Climb appears to have gone bust. Yeah, yeah. Now, the organisers of the festival are endeavouring to um, mitigate the damage. Um, They've actually made an offer to um, all the bookings that were done through their website. Uh, They'll take the money from that and make it available to those performers if if there's a liquidator appointed and if they can't retrieve all the outstanding money. So they're they're doing their best because this is clearly, um, you know, next time around when performers are thinking about coming to Perth, and performing here, yeah, that's I imagine they'll all be looking a lot closer at, well, who, am, who exactly am I doing business with? Yeah. How secure is it? How assured is it that I'll get paid my money? Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's not the kind of thing you want. 
as a reputation for the fin- fringe is mm. not good. But look, it's an interesting business model, isn't it? And, you can, and I guess maybe that's how they've been able to to do the to, to maintain the growth they've had and get to the size they've had so quickly is to have that kind of outsourced model. Um, I was always aware that the artists had a lot of risk. You know, they've got to go out and promote themselves, and I think you know they kind of. I was always aware they had to go and do quite a bit of negotiating with venues and the like to get it sorted. As far as I understood, absolutely but, right. Yeah. And essentially, it's down to the art, down to the performers mm. to sell tickets. Yeah, I mean, if they don't sell tickets to their shows, they don't make much money. Tough luck, yeah. if anything. You know, in, in contrast to the the big established festivals like you know, like Perth Festival. Because they get big name performers with an established reputation, yeah. So they've got a guaranteed um, income. Fringe gives the opportunity for all the up and coming people, but with that comes risk. Mm. Mm. Oh, there you go. Well, there you go. Mm. A business model in action, and sometimes it takes a failure for you to open enough of a door to actually see see the thing at work or not working. But as I say, Fringe Festival people are hard at work at the moment trying to mitigate the uh, fallout yeah. and uh, we'll, we'll be working very hard to ensure that they get things sort of back in shape for next year. 200,000, what did they sell? A million tickets or something? So $200,000, I guess they just have to put 20 cents on every ticket. There's some sort of, you know, levy. <laughs> um, now, Mark, we had uh, Chris Sutherland on stage this week to talk about uh, his career and the program business that he runs. Uh, now, I did that interview, but I thought, firstly, I'd be interested in your take on uh, on how it went and what he said. Yeah, no, look, Chris is a uh, very successful and very interesting guy. Um, look, you know, programmed, it's a name that people might be familiar because it sits on the, uh, the jumpers of the Fremantle Dockers. Um, they do all sorts of um, outsourcing services, you know, painters and plumbers and sparkies and cleaners and so on. They've got about 25,000 people yeah. around the country across just about every industry. So, you know, a very big organisation, but perhaps without the profile of a lot of other businesses of that scale. Yes. And one thing I found really interesting, that gives Chris and his team um, an almost unique insight into what's going on in business around the country. Yeah. And he had some, he had, in fact, some very encouraging thoughts on that topic. Um, yeah, his view was that during the boom, people probably talked up too much what was going on here in Western Australia, and that in recent years when people have been talking it down, he's saying, well, actually, we don't think it's that bad. Yeah. And he's got quite a positive uh, view looking forward. He said that you know, there are some people exposed to some of the big projects up north, you know, things like Wheatstone and Ictis and doing those big LNG and resources projects. You know, they're very volatile. They go come and go. But if you look outside of that, mm-hmm. his view is that the rest of the economy is performing quite solidly. Yeah, so, that, was, that was an interesting anecdote that he, he gave, wasn't it? I think it was 2012 he was talking about where they had come out at, at that that uh, post-June 30 period of making announcements about the market. And they were saying they were um, anticipating a poor Christmas and and seeing things in deterioration because they could see some of those suppliers to retailers where, where program provides labour, the labour demand was dropping. So they were seeing that. At the same time, all the retailers were putting out their final year results and say and people were predicting growth through to Christmas so a really interesting leading indicator 
I also, uh, I, I just found his whole, I mean, he's an e- engineer and he talked about his engineering background and how that plays into, um, you know, being, a, being in management. Um, and clearly he has management skills that are beyond what an average engineer would have. He's obviously a people person and he gets that and he's in a people business and he's clearly very good at that. But even just their strategy and how they, you know, de-risk the company and how they made decisions that, you know, look prescient now, but were just clearly based on, well, you know, before the GSC, there's too much debt, we need to get debt down and they're in a good position. Um, the way they carved off the, the uh, ships that they owned, that they'd inherited, be, uh, with the skilled transaction, I think, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Because they felt that we don't need to own assets, we're in the people business. And, you know, and all those, so maintaining focus, and yet they are growing outside of their their core businesses, but they're growing within their still core mantra of being in the people business, and uh, and they've grown overseas. So, uh, you know, fascinating discussion. And, and again, also, he's an M&A guy, and, you know, he's bought and sold a few businesses or been involved in mergers, and that's been pretty interesting to hear those stories too. And some good insights as well about his approach to management. You know, yeah. His first job was with Clough, and he, in fact he worked alongside Harold Clough, so one of WA's great sort of family-owned engineering businesses. Um, he spent a lot of time, um, I guess, trying to diversify and, and um, get a bit more diversity inside the workforce. In fact, he's chair of a group called CEOs for Gender Equity. Yeah. And he talks about that as really a driver of getting better business outcomes. If you've got a group of people and there's diversity in that group, you generally get a better outcome. Yeah. And also some interesting thoughts about um, there's you know a lot of I, I think you know fear that people have about artificial intelligence and automation and robotics and so on. Um, you know, I I thought Chris struck a chord there when he talked about the opportunities that flow from that sort of thing. Um, another big trend people have talked about is the move towards a casual or casualised workforce. Yeah, I heard it again today in a comment on the radio. And and yet, Chris said, you look at the numbers, the number of people with casual or part-time or independent contracting roles. Yep. He said it hasn't changed. No. It's about 20% of the workforce has been for a long time. Yep, since the late 90s. And in fact, then gives lots of opportunities. A lot of students do that. Yep. Fits perfectly for them. Yep. Uh, Women want flexible hours. Men want flexible hours. Yeah, you know, he made that point that a lot of people want it. It's uh, really interesting how casualisation has been, A, he says, overplayed by the union movement and those who are, you know, against whatever that flexibility is, and and B, it, it's it's turning it into a very negative thing rather than actually what a positive thing it is. Anyway, pretty fascinating. I, I Mark, I also, I did laugh at that anecdote he gave um, about... His first job being uh, Harold Clough saying, right, come with me, <laughs> and driving him down to uh, Mosman Park there, the Coombe, um, and uh, he had to build the retaining wall for what is, and still is, the Clough family compound, and uh, if you ever go boating around that that, that end of uh, Freshwater Bay, I think it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a monumental structure um, with, you know, I think there's three or four or five houses behind it. Um, I don't know whether... I didn't ask him if he carved his initials on the rock down below. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, Mark, our latest special report is on universities. Uh, What has your team dug up there? Yeah, look, Tori Wilson has had an in-depth look at some of the key trends going on in the university sector. Um, 
some fundamental sort of supply and demand issues going on here. Um, domestically, Western Australia, in fact, has the lowest transition from year 12 into university study compared to all the other states. Oh, I, right. I hadn't appreciated this, but we're... Even Tasmania. We're consistently the lowest right. of okay. all the states. It's intriguing. So the universities are looking at this and saying, well, you know, how do we actually get more people into our into our courses? One of the big trends has been increased use of enabling courses. So it's effectively an extra year of study in between school and the university degree. Yeah. So particularly um, Curtin, Edith Cowan, Murdoch, all doing a lot there. To and presumably there's people who haven't got the marks, right? That's right. They don't quite, don't quite reach the uh, sort of the ATAR cutoff requirement. Yeah. Um, or they might be mature age students and so on. So getting a lot more flexible and supportive, if you like, to get more people in um, online. You know, there's a big trend there where people are doing more and more um, of their study online. But a phrase I wasn't familiar with, um, Dawn Freshwater at UWA talked about the flipped classroom. Mm-hmm. So rather than online study killing off the classroom contact, she said it's actually just sort of um, changed the way people approach it. They'll listen to their lectures online, mm-hmm. but then come into the campus and sit down in tutorials and, and other forums to actually complement what they listen to online. Gotcha. So, you know, an evolution there. Um, international students, we've talked about this before. Western Australia has, is performing very poorly in that regard. Yes. We're down to just over 6% of the national market. Mm. And when you think we've got about 10.5% of the national population, we're only attracting a bit over 6% of all the international students. So this is a big issue you know, for the states and the universities here. Um, and then another interesting little one about the flexibility, um, Curtin University and others are doing things, they call them micro-masters. So instead of saying, you've got to come back and spend a year or more doing a master's degree, we'll give you a bunch of bite-sized units that you can study. Yeah, right. So that you can, and it's all around this sort of flexible learning and continual learning. Mm. So you're in a job, you want to go and go somewhere and pick up some extra skills to reflect you know, the changes in the world, changes in technology. Yeah. So they're adapting to try and um, sort of meet that requirement as well. Yeah, okay. So a lot's going on. You know, sometimes we think of universities as the uh, the proverbial um, tanker out at sea, very slow to change direction. Mm. Um, but quite a lot going on and a good in-depth analysis in our next edition. Great. I look forward to reading that. Thanks a lot. Uh, Our Rising Stars Awards recognises and celebrates WA-based companies that are growing, private and public, old and new, large and small. With entries open, we are on the lookout for companies that have experienced recent growth but still have future potential. Previous winners have come from diverse industries including engineering, technology, financial services, advertising, manufacturing, medical and aged care. Is that your business or do you have a client or supplier that ought to get the recognition they deserve? If so, please go to www.rising-stars.com.au to nominate. And nominations close soon, Friday, May 11, so please get in there. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Parnell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.